0: So we've had a bunch of white collar cases this season that we've discussed but we've got a good old-fashioned murder case this week and i'm going to be discussing it with craig alby who's the federal defender in wisconsin this case is based on the gone girl movie and book that you've probably seen or read where the woman left a note saying if i'm found dead please uh my husband is the first suspect not a good fact if you're representing the defendant but you'll hear about Craig fighting hard for his client. He's such a talented lawyer. you are also hear about how he trains new lawyers at the Federal Defender's Office to try cases like he's done. Um, it's a really fun episode with lots, lots of twists and turns in this murder case. And I'll have an update at the end of the episode about the season, CLE credits, and so on. So I'll catch you at the back end. My name is David Oscar Marcus. Welcome back to For the Defense. Next. All right. Well, we're back um, with For the Defense, and we have a wonderful guest this week, Craig Albee, who is the federal defender out in Wisconsin. And before he was the federal defender out there, um, he was a private practitioner in criminal defense and handled one of the most interesting cases, uh, the Mark Jensen case, which we'll be discussing. So welcome to the show, Craig. Thanks, David. Glad to be here. So, the, a lot of people say that this case, the Jensen case, was um, the foundation for the Gone Girl movie. Um, we'll we'll get into that, but it's it's also known in in circles as the Letter from the Grave case. Yeah, yeah. I mean the 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 big issue in the case, at least at the initial
1: trial, was that uh, Julie Jensen had had written a letter that she delivered to. The next door neighbor a uh, sealed envelope and said, "Give this to the police if something happens to me." She died about ten days later. They gave the letter to the police, and it said that my first suspect would be my husband if something something happened to me. And so that that kickstarted the investigation into the case.
0: Not not a great fact uh, <laughs> to, to start the case, uh, but it is a weird way to put it, right? My first suspect would be like that's a kind of an odd phrasing.
1: Our position has always been that the the letter was a blueprint for framing her husband. Um, she was suffering from serious depression at the at the time and um, was engaging in a lot of bizarre, be- bizarre behaviors that I think all could be um, viewed from a, a different uh, vantage point than the prosecution did here.
0: Was there a reason why she would want to frame her husband? Like what was going on there?
1: Um, I mean, number one was just the, the degree of her, of her depression. She had gone to a doctor on her own um, two days before her death. Uh, that doctor described her as distraught, depressed, and, and actually frantic. Um, uh, diagnosed her with a major depressive disorder and, and, and gave her Paxil. Um, anger at her, she was struggling with the, uh, her youngest child going to school, um so she was alone and home and uh her husband was having an affair it was the other obvious reason to um for anger towards him and that and she had discovered that
0: uh there there's certainly signs that indicate that she had yeah yeah so this this case is all the way back in December of nineteen ninety eight um I saw you came into the case in april of 99 after he was uh, interviewed by police i guess he did he voluntarily submit to an interview for eight hours he did yeah so
1: she died in december 98 as you indicated and then um the police asked him to come come down to the to the station in, in april um he thought he was going to be there such a short time he even had a, a one of his young sons with him uh, and then it turned into an eight eight hour ordeal. He actually wasn't charged until March of two thousand and two. Um, but yeah, there was an eight hour interview at that time without a lawyer.
0: Oh, <laughs> you just when you get the call and you get brought into a great case and you're told, uh, yeah, I, I spoke to the uh, police for eight hours yesterday. You wanna you wanna kill yourself.
1: Yeah, um, that—that's you, you. generally prefer to get that call before the before the interview, which of course would never take place under in, in that circumstance. How, yeah. How bad was the interview? It was uh, a read technique on steroids. Uh, lots of uh, browbeating, lots of screaming at him, lots of efforts to try to um, get him to acknowledge some lesser um, actions of, of abuse against his wife. Uh, he didn't, uh, he agreed that he'd take a polygraph. He didn't uh, uh, say that he had done uh, anything. He just described her, her situation. Probably the worst outcome from the, the interview is that it was available in Mark's cell. Many years later, when a jailhouse snitch was able to latch onto it and adopt the theory that the the detective was pursuing during the interrogation, and that became the, the prosecution theory, but it originated with the police officer and then was adopted by the jailhouse snitch. What was that theory? That um, so she had uh, antifreeze in her system. Our theory was that she had taken the antifreeze. uh, The suicide theirs was um, as a homicide, and that had been their theory for nine years until um, until the day of until the day the first day of trial, Um, and at that time they they uh, it was that he had suffocated her that he had pushed her head into the pillow, Um, and that theory didn't come up until the redirect of the original medical examiner who had done nothing other than taken samples um, and written a a basic report about his observations. And on redirect, for the first time, he was shown a picture that showed her nose uh, bent in an unusual position and then told that this snitch had said that uh she had been suffocated at which point the uh this medical examiner was willing to give the opinion that oh this must have been suffocation it was, it was preposterous yeah
0: so so i mean you know talking about this this medical examiner i know there's lots of lots of ins and outs with that person i guess his name was dr long uh was the medical examiner and and his first conclusion was that there was, what, more than 20 ounces of antifreeze in her system? Yeah, a quick step
1: back. The The first medical examiner is Dr. Shambliss. Dr. Long is a toxicologist who received the information in, in St. Louis. So as I said, they didn't charge this case for three and a half years, and they only did once they had Dr. Long's report. And Dr. Long said... Uh, that there were 22 ounces of uh, contents in her stomach that was almost all pure antifreeze ethylene glycol. Um, that turned out to actually be a half a teaspoon of ethylene glycol was in his was in her stomach. Um, I believe he misplaced the decimal point, but it was the entire basis for his
0: conclusion, scientific conclusion that this was a homicide. amazing. It, that that must have been a fun cross, the decimal point cross.
1: absolutely i mean the the for that kind of that kind of mistake is with ethylene glycol it takes about 36 hours for it to become toxic it's not initially poisonous it's the metabolites that become poisonous and so his theory was that if she had that much in her stomach that wouldn't have been what killed her and that it was like a second dose that was given to her when she was too weak to have taken it herself but the entire foundation for that opinion just disappears when you realize it's just a half a teaspoon that could be left from the initial consumption that she took herself. Um, you know, and the the big problem here was that none of this. I mean, the, the the prosecution is pretty shameless. Like none of it would ever cause them to reconsider what their hypothesis was in the case.
0: It's crazy, right? So, so is this a Perry Mason moment where you're able to show that it's much less than the toxicologist said, or or, or had that come out pretrial?
1: Become, our our experts had had established that, and um, we had previously cross-examined Doctor Long about it uh, at this unusual uh, thing in this case called a forfeiture hearing that I don't think had ever previously existed. That was a as a result of of Crawford, the Crawford versus
0: Washington, the confrontation issue. So so it came out. Uh, the prosecution knew your position would be it was a small amount of antifreeze, and they did they stick to their guns or did they admit that it was a it was a problem? He, they
1: acknowledged that there was the mistake about what how much was in the contents. They waffled on what his original opinion was and how much it depended on uh, you know the the
0: contents being all ethylene glycol. And, and this toxicologist, I guess, had a history of of uh, messing up with antifreeze. Yeah. Uh, So he had
1: testified in one prior antifreeze case in Missouri. Patricia Stallings uh, was a mother of an infant son, and she was convicted of murdering him based on giving him antifreeze Was the theory. And then um, she gave birth to a second child while she was in jail. And then that child developed the same symptoms as the first one who had passed away. It turned out to be a genetic, a genetic condition. So long had, uh, been in charge of the toxicology in that case, um, where an innocent woman had gone to prison. He also at the behest of the prosecutor in that case had whited
0: out the spectra so that it matched more clearly for the, for the jury. Unbelievable that, uh, that this guy was still allowed to testify. I mean, just shocking. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know and and i guess when people non-criminal defense lawyers listen to these stories you know they 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 must think wow this is like a one in a million shot what they don't realize is you know these kinds of things happen in criminal defense cases all the time i mean you're the federal defender now you see this i mean maybe not as extreme where a toxicologist put an innocent person away and then (laughs) you know was asked to testify about the same kind of thing again but I mean we see it every day in our practices yeah i mean the
1: you know the the junk the junk science involved and and he wasn't he wasn't the uh, the only one in this case that um the the dr shambliss who i i mentioned before on cross-examination he didn't know what a microgram was which is a millionth of a gram but i mean a basic thing you would understand if you're uh, a forensic pathologist. Um, the The next medical examiner was fired because she refused to test to tell the prosecutor why she wasn't board certified um, and would not been able uh, available to to testify in the
0: case. Um, so it, it kind of went went on and on. When when you had this case, you were in private practice. Obviously, as a PD, you don't get to pick your cases. You get assigned, and and um, you know it's one of the actually great things about being a public defender. But in private practice, you get uh, you get to choose. How, how did you um, get involved in this case?
1: So so Mark, after the uh, eight hour interrogation that we that we discussed, uh, came to our office in in Milwaukee. He was down in, in Kenosha, which is about forty five minutes away. Um, one of my partners at the time, Jim Shello, is one of the country's great criminal defense lawyers, widely known. He actually came to see Jim initially. Um, uh, another lawyer, Steve Glenn, and I split off from Jim about a year later, and Mark Mark came with came with us. And by the time the trial, the the case was entirely
0: mine. I've heard uh, I've heard old Jim Shello stories. Um, you have any good ones? Any good Shello stories?
1: Problem is figuring out which ones I can <laughs> like, publicly, publicly tell. He was, he was just a, an absolute, uh, an absolute genius. Great, great cross examiner. Um, yeah, just a, a delight to work with. Right.
0: Did, did he, um, did he have any books or anything that that are worth uh, reading? I, I don't remember.
1: Yeah. Well, he, um, he has, uh, a volume on cross examining, um, drug analysts that was his uh that was a that was a, a specialty of his was cross examining crime crime lab uh analysts of uh of drugs and for a while he he traveled the country uh explaining that the the that they couldn't prove that the cocaine involved in the case was the the, the type of cocaine prescribed by the federal statutes that actually caused um uh the congress to change the definition of cocaine because the to, to Prevent that defense any f-
0: any further. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. So back to back to Jensen. So initially, when Jensen's charged and you have the case, you you get him a bond, which is pretty um, rare and unique in a murder case to have a bond. Um, ha- tell me what happens there.
1: Uh, so um, I think we I think it was three hundred thousand dollars. His his family and friends uh, um, pitched together to to put up the money, um, and so he was out from uh within a couple of months of being charged through the trial or through shortly before the trial in 2007. um i mentioned this forfeiture hearing bef- before um which <laughs> it's kind we moved we moved to exclude the the letter and while the motion was pending we said it was a violation of, of confrontation that uh, you know, because we obviously couldn't cross-examine Julie Jensen about her lawyer saying she would suspect her husband. Um, that didn't necessarily go over that well with the the prosecutor and 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 some others, the victim rights folks. But the judge agreed with us after Crawford came out, which was during the pendency of the case, which which said that we had the right to cross-examine, and the trial court judge excluded the letter. It went to the Wisconsin Supreme Court pre-trial. They said uh, he th- that he could he may have um, forfeited his confrontation right by killing his wife, but there had to be a determination by the trial judge who had determined by a preponderance of the evidence whether in fact he would killed his wife. So we had this unusual situation where we're having a pretrial trial uh, fact finding by the judge as to whether our
0: client had had done this. So so just so everybody's on the same page, the yeah. the the argument is you know, we can't cross-examine a letter. It's hearsay. You know, it's classic hearsay. There's no uh, person to cross-examine. It's an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter, right? And so you move to exclude it. You say, it's hearsay. We we have the right to confront the author of the document of the letter. The, the judge initially says, uh, agreed, it's out. And then it gets reversed. Is that what happens? The Supreme Court reverses?
1: They re- they remand that issue because there has to be a determination as to whether the f- there's a factual basis that our client
0: forfeited it by making her unavailable for the for the trial. I see, and so at that hearing, the judge it, does he consider the letter itself, or is it mostly other evidence? He does
1: consider the letter and all the other evidence. It was a two-week. It was a two-week hearing. Oh I, wow! I know, Florida, I know in Florida you get uh, depositions. We don't hear anyone, You know, basically anywhere else. So we had a two-week hearing before the trial in this case, at which Doctor Long and others uh, testified. So a, a lot of a lot of the case was previewed, previewed there,
0: it, which is wonderful. Gr- great to have that sort of you know, background and everything else. The problem is the judge ends up taking your guy in after the hearing.
1: Uh, so I, I guess that was the original question. The very first, the very first witness they call was a guy named Ed Klug, who uh, I've been on this case for at that point for eight years. And I start looking through my bankers boxes uh, that are behind me. I've got nothing about Ed Klug any, anywhere in the file. Um, he had, he had just, uh, come forward and claimed that he had had a conversation with, with Mark Jensen a month before, uh, his wife's death in St. Louis at a conference and that he had said he was looking for ways to kill his wife.
0: Um, you know, you know, uh, there's an expression for that witness in federal court where you get no depots and you're sitting next to your client and the government calls, uh, a witness and you ask your client who that witness is. And they say, oh shit. Uh, that's called the oh shit witness um when when they call him. Uh, so so Klug gets called um and says what that your client that your client had confessed? Uh,
1: yeah, that at, at that point it was it was before her death. so he he had said that uh, he was looking for ways to he was ah. researching ways to kill her. after his testimony, uh, the judge, on his own, without a motion from the prosecutor, raised bail from three hundred thousand to one point two million, uh, a sum that Mark was never able to to meet, uh, and so he ended up locked up from that point that point forward. You know, and the the the, the, the real sad thing there is that Klug ended up being the you know a, a highly incredible witness, somebody who's all of his coworkers viewed as an attention getter. Um, somebody who made a, a, a lot of inconsistent statements. He hadn't come forward for a number of years. He um, changed his story repeatedly. I think if the, the court had had the advantage of knowing all that at the time, it never the bail never would have been raised because he wasn't dependable enough to to rely on.
0: So I guess two bad things happen at that hearing. One is that the you know the letter is going to come in uh at the trial because it's it's deemed forfeit his confrontation rights are deemed forfeited and and bails increased I've always had a problem with with you know bail being denied uh in in these cases because it's almost impossible to prepare for a trial when your client's detained especially a murder case like this to to prepare it's it's really impossible it's just a way to squeeze your client make it more difficult uh make the playing field as as uh you know we know it's not leveled but to make it even more unfair i mean to to have to meet with your client to prepare for a murder trial in custody is impossible
1: yeah there, there are a couple things there i i mean mark had spent dozens and dozens of hours in our, in our office in milwaukee getting ready for trial help you know pouring through the enormous amounts of information in the case and you know, working working with us, and now all that has to be done in the jail. He also doesn't have the same access to to the paperwork that's in the case, and that there's an enormous amount. And then the other thing that is uh, unfortunately highly predictable in a high profile case like this is, you, when he goes to jail, people are going to be jumping on his jumping on his case, and that is indeed what what happened is a number of jailhouse snitches. Um, started saying that that Mark was confessing confessing to them, um, yeah. You
0: know. So you know this this happens a lot, obviously in cases in which our clients are detained. I don't think people realize it how how frequent um, the jump on uh, phenomenon is where. You know, our our system is built on snitching, on people getting their sentences reduced from cooperating, pointing the finger at others, and so on. And so, there's a whole culture in the jail. When when people in the jail hear someone's going to trial, it's like a party because people can say, "Oh, he confessed. He told me this. He told me that." And and prosecutors really turn a blind eye to this. I mean, what what everybody knows are are lies.
1: Yeah. And- you know, and, and that's something we we really see a, a lot of in federal court, uh, particularly with the mandatory minimums that that exist. Is in many cases uh, somebody somebody facing trial in fe- federal court the only way they're getting below a mandatory minimum is to come forward and snitch and snitch on somebody. They know that they start looking for ways to accomplish that in 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 jail. Um, yeah, you know, it's in. I mean, it's it's a phenomenon that's just much much too per,
0: pervasive. And of course, in your case, we get uh, a bunch of those. One of them um, that I saw is a guy named Aaron Dillard. Uh, tell me about this uh, this guy who jumps onto the case.
1: Yeah, so so Dillard had uh, many uh, many convictions. Uh, he had the distinction of being the first American ever to be extradited to Lithuania. Where he was selling phony visas to desperate uh, Lithuanians wanting to come to the United States, they'd they'd uh, empty their empty their bank accounts to pay him to get them a visa that was never going to be forthcoming. And that was just pretty emblematic of of what his character was. he He, he would defraud anyone at any time. the The judge uh, at some point in the trial said that in a, a third of a century in this business, uh, he was probably the top liar he'd ever had in court. Uh, that he, he said he was on a pedestal all by himself, um, and that that was in response, of course, to denying me the ability to engage in more cross examination because he he thought that it had already been accomplished. But Dillard, who you know said that Mark confessed to him, was such an important witness that you know we had to pull out all stops and and do everything we could. Um, another thing about him is he was a, a he victimized women uh, frequently and often would uh, meet them by giving a false name, convince them that he was a home contractor um, to do work on their house, uh, get thousands of dollars, never do the work. Um, just a, just a long line of, of, of fraud um, that he had that he had committed.
0: And so I see, you, you know, you start writing on an easel, all the different ways uh, we should call him a liar, con man, criminal, all these things. Do you do that while he's testifying or in closing? Oh, no. While he's
1: while he's testifying, um, we had the the um, pad of paper out uh, and the marker and, you know, says and he was freely confessing. I said, you're a liar. Write down liar, con man thief you know this answer is like sure you know he's just he's acknowledging all these things the other thing we used on the whiteboard with him and other witnesses was to show just how much time they they faced um upon upon conviction or if they didn't have the benefit of the prosecution's recommendation that they were going to be getting in the in the case to
0: to show the jury of course you know the motive that they have to come in and just say anything because if they're looking at 20 years who wouldn't point the finger at Mark Jensen to get a reduction
1: right right yeah I mean the the uh, the level of desperation that um, uh, Dillard and another in, uh, inmate named David Thompson and others uh, showed I mean this was the only way that they were going to get out of get out of jail anytime soon was by turning on turning on mark
0: I mean also what I saw is you know trial starts in 2008 10 years after um, his wife died. That's a long time between the event and trial.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, as I said, the case had gone out, although they didn't charge it for three and a half years waiting for Dr. Long, whose opinion was, you know, completely based on his miscalculation. And then we had the Crawford issue that went to the Wisconsin Supreme court. And then it came, then it came back. So all of that, you know, it was a 10 year, a 10 year process,
0: so you start trial where is the trial
1: held what city so uh the we moved we moved to change venue based on all the publicity that have been in, in kenosha um the um that was granted but the court there, there's an option of going to madison wisconsin which the court deemed too liberal <laughs> uh, and so um in no uncertain terms that was the that was the reason why i wasn't going to madison so it went to a neighboring county which probably had too high a risk of publicity seeping into the, 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 the news of that county, but also is a very uh, conservative county, Walworth County in Wisconsin, and uh, a town called Elkhorn is the county
0: seat. So do you drive in every day or do you stay there?
1: No, you know, other than at the conclusion of this case, when I heard guilty, the uh, second most depressing uh, words I heard was when I was checking out of the American and they said that'll be 51 nights.
0: Oh my so God. I
1: was in the American for 51 nights. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that was a little brutal.
0: That is, that's brutal um, for so many reasons to be in a hotel for that long. Um, and to, to, you know, people just don't get how, how. This job is, and when you have a long trial like that, what the toll it takes on you?
1: Yeah, um, it, it it really does. I mean, a lot of times people talk about the late nights they they work. Um, I found myself kind of going in the other direction as I'd be so exhausted after after the day of trial and doing doing some work that I started going to bed earlier and earlier. But I started getting up at. 1 or 2 a.m. to, you know, spend five hours working before the trial would start for the start for the day.
0: Oh, I couldn't do that. I don't know how you do that, Craig. That's that's crazy to me that you would wake up that early and work until until the day begins. That's nuts.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's either work till midnight and get up at four, or you know, go to bed at, at nine and get up at one or two. So, uh, you know, I, I just chose the latter. And for this case.
0: When you're in trial like that, are you able to do any exercise, eat well, or are you just a mess? No, pretty pretty much messes. Uh, yeah, I, I lost
1: about 15 pounds during this trial. Um, the hospital, that, that courthouse is not near anything other than the hospital. So the the lunch option is go to the hospital across the street. You know how hospital food is. So that, that usually meant uh, pretty much doing without food during the day.
0: Right, it's, uh, second to prison food, I guess. Um, so th- the uh, trial is televised, which again I always find interesting. Did you uh, do you believe trial should be televised? Did it did it affect the case? You know, I, I I had I'll have to say I had a lot greater worries
1: before the before the case went on about it being televised. Um, you know, the cameras were less obtrusive than I mean, you really didn't notice notice them. They had them in boxes and, and, and stuff. Um, but there were a lot of ways in, in which it affected the the, the trial. Um, I, I think there was some grandstanding by the prosecutor towards uh, towards the cameras. Um, certainly, um, I get a lot more emails when a case is televised uh, from uh uh, both well wishers and haters, uh, with suggestions about uh, how I should conduct the trial, or uh, you know, just getting out of the business
0: altogether. I guess. Well, this this uh, your judge had another high profile case televised recently. Same same judge as the Rittenhouse case, right?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, he he did the Rittenhouse. I know there there was a lot of uh, controversy in Rittenhouse over he refused to allow uh, the the people who had been shot to be referred to as victims um which uh i i, I probably disagree with them in that in that case but that came from that came from jensen too because i uh wisconsin allows like um you when there's the when witnesses are sequestered they allow exceptions for victims so by getting uh, by saying that she wasn't a victim because that was the issue in the trial, whether it's suicide or homicide. And under our theory, she's not a victim at all. Um, we were able to keep out family members throughout the trial, which I, you know, was preferable, preferable to us rather than creating sympathy with the juror for jurors for who's
0: attending the trial. Oh, interesting. So, so her, her family members weren't allowed to watch.
1: I think they were. I think they were excluded. The, the ones, the um, the ones who are potential witnesses.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The potential witnesses. Sure. Sure. Um. And and what about you know what what I have always found in murder cases, even more so than than white collar cases or run of the mill cases, is the decision of the client to testify or not, because you know obviously th- this is, the the defense in in every murder case is either. I didn't do it, or I I did it, but it was self defense; it was justified. So, e- either one of those defenses, a lot of times, I think it calls for a defendant to testify. Was that a tough decision in your case? And, and tell me about it. Yeah, uh, you know, very very difficult decision because, um,
1: you know, I, I I think you know in many ways Mark could have told this story um, better than any better than anyone. A big problem in this case was uh, the admission of very seriously prejudicial information. Um, one part of that, for example, was that four years after the after uh, she passed, Julie passed away, they conducted a search warrant at Mark's office around the time when he was first arrested, and there was a collection of penis photos that the the there was a weak link that the prosecution was trying to make to some harassment of Julie Jensen that had occurred years earlier, where pornographic photos had been left around, uh, around the house, you know, outside her house. Um, There were things like that, that were, that were so prejudicial. um, And, you know, I I guess on one hand you think they have already come in, but I I could just see the cross-examination was going to be, it's just spent on these prejudicial things, probably to the exclusion of uh, the things we most wanted to talk about.
0: You know, I, I noticed you you call her Julie and, and call him Mark. What, one of the things that even, you know, all trial lawyers in every case talk about is how to refer to the client in the case. Do you call him Mr. Jensen? Do you call him Mark? How to refer to the supposed victim or, uh, you know, complaining witness in the case. Do you call uh you call them by their first name or Mrs. Jensen. You know all these little tiny decisions um, go into our work. What? How did you land on on things like that?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I, I agree with your point. I mean, we spent a lot of time like worrying about such you know such little things. I, I you know over and over again, you know, in this case, I mean, you, what you never call them is defendant and victim. Like, you know, right. we're all, we're all, we're all clear on that. Although, you know, there are too many courthouses you walk into and, and, and hear that, um, you know, part of the, you know, and some, ju- some judges will only allow you to refer to people by their last names, So you sometimes run into that. I, I think, I think here, the, de- the decision may have been less strategic just in the sense of there are two Jensen's, so once you're referring to, you know, rather than refer to Jensen, you know, Mark and Mark and Julie seem to be the way to go. It becomes pretty obvious if you're trying to refer to him as Mark and her as Mrs. Jensen that you're, you know, that you're trying to dehumanize her at his expense. You certainly don't want to do it the other way around. So uh, here it just seemed
0: Mark and Julie seemed to be the way to go. Right. And, and of course, the prosecutor always calls them defendant and victim, but you, you were able to keep out the victim tag yeah 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 um so the trial takes seven weeks um jury goes out how, how long is the jury out for the jury was out for i think it was like 32 hours oh my goodness torture right
1: absolute torture the the first day i want to say that closings were done um sometime around sometime around noon if i if i had to guess how long and, did you get for closing? uh about two hours yeah so uh, the uh, the judge uh there were a number of alternates, and the judge was concerned that people you know. Given the length of the trial, that deliberations might be a little bit longer and that, you know, somebody wouldn't be available to continue deliberations. And so he he wanted an agreement from me that I would allow one of the alternates to just take a juror's place if the juror you know, became unavailable for some reason. And I absolutely wasn't willing to do that. I had no idea, you know, I couldn't predict what the circumstances might be, you know, how far into deliberations it might be. There was no way I was going to do that. So he kept them there, I think, the first day for 13 hours, uh, just trying to insist that, they, you know, so they were there till almost midnight, I oh. think, before they finally begged to go, begged to go home. Brutal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they continued through, you know, uh, three, you know, into the, into the third day after that, um, before coming back with a
0: verdict. So, just to back up a second, during your closing, you get two hours. Do you are you a believer in demonstratives and things like this, or are you just talking for two hours?
1: No, I, I made a, uh, You know, made a point of trying to use uh, you know as many demonstratives as possible. You know, um, these days I probably would have had more in the way of PowerPoint. Although I'm not always a big fan, it, um, there it was more you know storyboards and things like that. 2008 seems like a long a long time ago so yeah. um yeah but uh yeah we we did use demonstratives
0: and and at the federal defenders now um do your lawyers use powerpoint is that the main thing they use in their closings
1: i think that's i i think that's i think that's right that that would be your know, trial you know some other variation of powerpoint you know trial director or whatever yeah right
0: right um, you know, it's, it's interesting, um, in some of the recent mock juries that we've done, some of the jurors feedback is like, they don't really like a lot of PowerPoint I and mean, they, they, you know, it's, it's the death by PowerPoint thing. It's unless the, unless the slide is really effective, um, you know, just putting words on the screen, which you walk into a lot of courtrooms and you see lawyers just putting like, you know, uh, points one through eight and walking through that. Like they don't like that. No,
1: no I, I... I I definitely don't think that's the that's the way to go. It should be used very uh, judiciously. You know, probably mostly for you know exhibit you know a photograph from the trial or you know a, a, something from the scene or you know a piece of evidence. Um, I I would I would agree with that. I and mean, putting up putting up text is is not uh, not generally very persuasive.
0: Right. So so your guy, um, you get the verdict. Um, you're by yourself you try the case by yourself which is really hard to do a seven-week murder trial you don't have anybody with you during the trial
1: i had uh my investigator angie Cavedra, who was an enormous enormous help but um yeah it it was it was rough um being on all the time every single every single witness you know no no chance that you know uh, it's much preferable to have a second attorney there to identify potential errors, get ready for the next legal issue, be taking a witness while you get ready for a more important witness who's coming coming up later. Um, you know, and I, I, given the length of this trial, I just didn't have I didn't have that available to me.
0: It's crazy. Do, do your do your lawyers at the federal defender's office try cases with each other? Are they all are they on their own?
1: Yeah the the uh, what we always strive to do. Uh, except maybe if it's a, a a very short trial, is to have have two lawyers at at every trial.
0: Yeah. And, and how how do you train your your lawyers to be trial lawyers? I mean, it's so hard these days to get the experience. I mean, being obviously a defender is a great way to do it, but how do they learn how to do the shallow cross and those kinds of things?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're right. You know, there's a, a dearth of, uh, of federal, of federal trials. And a lot of times the stakes are so high, you know, in terms of putting it, putting somebody, you know, somebody out who's inexperienced, you know, the federal defender organization has some you know good programs, the trial skills, uh, week long program. Um, you know, we try to get you know some people to NCDC or a number of people have been there, you know, and sometimes I've, you know, I've hired people who have, you years of trial experience already. Um, you know, we work together, we work together closely. Um, you know, I guess that's the way I learned too, you know, doing some second, second sharing, um, pointing them to the right treatises to, you know, look at, to learn, learn about cross-examination and other trial skills and, uh, you know, just really hard, work hard to give them the foundation and, and the work ethic to know how hard you have to work through it, work through a trial.
0: So Jensen, Jensen gets the the bad verdict, um, but you don't give up. And h- how do you get to the next stage? Tell us what happens. I mean, it's pretty, pretty wild.
1: Yeah. So um I tell Mark that I should not do the appeal. There's one obvious appeal issue, that, and that is the Wisconsin Supreme Court said the letter comes in if he forfeited his rights, and all they have to do is prove by a preponderance that he caused her absence. Three months after trial, the United States Supreme Court decides a case called Giles that says uh, you have to show not that just the defendant caused the absence of the witness, but also did so for the purpose of preventing him or her from testifying. So you have to act with that specific purpose. And it was agreed upon even by the state here that their theory was he did it because he... Wanted, you know, their theory was he wanted to kill her, not because he wanted to keep her from testifying. And so it was clear after Giles that there's no way there should be a forfeiture finding here. Right. I didn't do the appeal because I, I wanted the. Um, Mark, to have the benefit of somebody else reviewing the transcript and raising any ineffective claims, if that's what they they thought should be raised. I didn't think that I, I should be the one reviewing it and deciding whether those had validity or not. Um, so someone else went to the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. Um, the case was lost there. They found it harmless there. And you know, the hypocrisy of the state to argue harmless error when repeatedly they had talked about this being an essential component of their, their case, you know, the critical the critical piece of evidence, every single argument they made during closing was based in some way, it seemed, on the letter itself. Um, you know, and then it's harmless error that it really wasn't that big a deal.
0: It's crazy, right? I mean, it, I mean, this is the classic example of why harmless error for appellate courts is so result oriented I mean so so that folks know what what harmless error means is that it was wrong to let it in but it didn't make a difference in the case. it was harmless and I mean in this case to say that a letter from from the grave, you know uh that that Julie's letter saying you know suspect my husband is harmless is 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 absurd. I mean for a, how could a court say that it's just it makes no sense. Yeah, you yeah, know, and absolutely absurd. And uh, um,
1: and it, not only that, I mean, the, at, at that level, the court had to find that it was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like this enormous standard, too. But uh, at, at any rate, so he lost in the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. And roughly at the same time, uh, I joined the Federal Defender's Office. Mark became aware of that. He filed a, a pro se. Habeas petition, but asked that I be appointed to take over his federal habeas pe- petition to challenge the state court conviction, which I readily agreed to to do. Um,
0: and then so we started, embarked on on that project. And so you know, you're you're now his lawyer again. The appellate court has said they shouldn't have let in the letter, but it didn't make a difference in the trial. So his conviction is affirmed. You're now going uh, into federal court and arguing that it did make a difference. What happens?
1: Yeah, so um, we go to the district court, uh, myself, along with uh, Joe Joe Bugney, who's a a great federal defender here in the office. And um, uh, the district court judge agrees that um, it it was harmful error and orders that uh, Jensen be retried. The state appealed to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals they affirmed uh they affirmed the district court and ordered a new ordered a new trial so all of this took uh a number of years i think it was 2015 or 16 before we get
0: the 7th circuit agreeing that he gets a new a new a new trial well um, you, yeah. you were lucky to have bugney with you he's he's awesome and and uh Uh, you know, um, he must have, you guys must have gone crazy and celebrated when you got that order from the seventh circuit.
1: It was a good day. I remember I was, uh, I I was meeting with a client in the jail and he was, uh, he got, he got word while I was in the jail. He was waiting for me uh, outside when I came, came out of the meeting with the client. So awesome! yeah, that
0: was, that was great. Awesome. And so, so now he gets a new trial, but you're at the federal defenders. It's, it's a state court case. You can't, you can't keep it
1: yeah yeah and so there's going to be more delay because um somebody has to digest the seven-week trial as well as all the other discovery in the case and get ready to try this case so um that of course takes a long time the judge refuses to reduce uh bail there's now a new circuit court uh wisconsin circuit court judge on the case um, and so that takes a whole bunch of time. But then as they um, approach trial, the, uh, the state uh, re- asks that the letter come in to evidence. Uh, and they say that the law has changed, that there's been an intervening Supreme Court case that has changed the law on confrontation and that it no longer should be deemed testimonial, as the Wisconsin Supreme Court had found um and it should be uh it should be admitted the uh yeah go you ahead know what happens
0: um, so what happens with that does the judge let it in yeah so the trial court and
1: and so the, the silly thing about that is
0: the
1: the the united states supreme court case had already been decided by the time the seventh circuit case was final so it, it really shouldn't have been up for reconsideration in any way shape or form the trial court not only uh says the letter is admissible now. It also says, well, since the letter's coming in, this trial would be just like the last trial. So he doesn't get a new trial. (laughs) Oh geez. Um yeah, um just absolutely, absolutely crazy. Bugney and I go try to go back to the Seventh Circuit and say they're not following following the the writ. Um we lose there in the Seventh Circuit. Meanwhile, um, the state in the state court, the public defender's office is pursuing pursuing appeals of that decision. Ultimately, resulting in the Wisconsin Supreme Court saying he gets a new trial. The letter is not coming in; it's law of the case. But now Mark has to get a third set of third set of lawyers because his lawyer that was about ready it was a month from trying the case. His name is Deja Vishni. Um, she retired, so now some new lawyers from the state public defender's office have to start getting up to speed to try, to try the case. Unbelievable. Um, and so unfortunately it, it came, I, I think it was in Jan- January, that the case January of 23, this case finally comes up for, uh, for retrial it's 15 years, uh, to the month after I tried the case it's, um, you know, 20, <laughs> Where are we at? I'm trying to do the math 25 years is that what it is uh yeah after the after yeah. her death um and unfortunately um uh the the jury convicts in this case and uh earlier this year you know mark has filed the notice of notice of appeal and is waiting to be uh, appointed counsel on that
0: well if it gets affirmed maybe you can do the habeas again and get him uh, trial number three um, uh, I sure look forward to trial number three for him.
1: Uh, I would hope that wouldn't take another 15, 15 years. I mean just the the delays in this case were um, you know outrageous uh, waiting waiting to get that new trial particularly. And and again, I mean the the state just no matter what, never reconsiders um, right. you know their in, initial position no matter how how the evidence turns. one thing I didn't mention is, you know, with Aaron Dillard, the medical examiner at trial ended up relying on Dillard um, as the basis for her opinion that this was a homicide. She just accepted that. And, you know, I mean... There's some question. I, I, I know it, like Illinois, for one, has adopted a statute that keeps out that there's a reliability determination for jailhouse snitches, which is something that should happen. There should be, you know, I mean, at, at some point, somebody like Dillard, who between the first trial and this trial had new fraud convictions. I mean, of course, as you would expect, David, in the first trial, he said, I'm a new man. Now I tell the truth, (laughs) you know, by this trial, he's got new convictions showing that that was of course a lie that we all knew, Um, but you know, whether he should be able to testify at all or whether there's any scientific, you know, a a medical examiner should rely on science, not the statement of a jailhouse snitch, but that's what continued to
0: happen here. It's wild. Um, Just, just absolutely wild. Meantime. At your federal defender's office, you have some of the greatest lawyers we mentioned Bugney, you have Krista Holla, Jess Ettinger. I mean, it's a—it's an all-star group over there. You have.
1: Uh, we have a we have a tremendous uh, a tremendous office both uh, in, in well in Milwaukee, Madison, and and Green Bay. Yeah, um, extremely lucky to have such a great collection of uh, lawyers here. Yeah,
0: and you know this this is the kind of case that that lots of people obviously watched are interested in one of the things i saw and is that his son testified at the at least the second trial um did the kids support dad or, or or what was the story there yeah so the i at the at the uh at the time uh
1: of her death uh the youngest son was three, but the oldest son, I believe, was eight. Eight at the time, so mm-hmm. the three-year-old would have been too young to yeah. have any any memory, you know, meaningful to to testify. And the older son was supportive, and uh, uh, you know that was one of the tough decisions at the first first trial is whether to call him because he he was supportive, um, you know, and there was just questions, of, you know, about whether it would be viewed as ex- exploiting him and uh, some other. Some other issues that made that a more difficult difficult decision.
0: Well, what a fascinating case! I know it's not over yet, um, even though it's twenty five years later. So, I, I just wanted to thank you uh, for coming on the show, Craig, and and uh, for your dedication to criminal defense. It's it's amazing the story to to hear it.
1: No, thanks. Thanks a lot. Love, love your, uh, love the podcast. Love that you're talking to criminal defense lawyers. It's, uh, uh,
0: it's a great thing. Yeah, keep, thanks tr- a lot. Keep, keep trying cases. Will do. What a crazy, crazy case. Um, you can see why so many books, movies, podcasts have been dedicated to the Letter from the Grave case. When a woman has a letter saying you should suspect my husband. It's just tailor made for um, all the crime uh, podcasts and junkies that we have out there. So thank you for listening and thank you to Craig Alby for being involved. He's a true warrior, defender, and fighter. We have another great defender here in Miami, Michael Caruso, and this episode is dedicated to all the assistant federal defenders and defenders who are out there um, fighting for their clients, state public defenders as well. There's, They are in our courts every day fighting for clients and oftentimes not recognized as they should. They're some of the best lawyers in our country. Um, We have one more episode that we're going to have in this podcast season. Uh, It's going to be Margot Moss, my partner and I discussing the Andrew Gillum case. And I will have CLE credit codes for Florida at the end of that episode. I'm also planning a couple bonus episodes coming up, which should be really fun. um, and, And I'm looking forward to it. So thank you so much again for listening. Please share, please comment and like. It really helps spread the word. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and I appreciate all of you for listening. Thank you.